Good morning, YouTube. I have my second coffee, which says no bad days, and today is not going to be a bad day. How can you have a bad day when I get to sit around in my pajamas and talk to some really cool cats of the guitar world? And I heard someone lurking around outside my front door just before. I wish they'd actually ring and see who it is. Whoops, that's the wrong button. That joke just went completely nowhere. <laughs> that's the button I was looking for. Who's at my front door? It is no other than Mr. Tim Pierce. Hey, Tim. <laughs> I, need to, I need a doorbell and I need an audience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I've got uh, I got this little controller where I can hit those little buttons. Uh, if it makes nice. you feel good, I'll hit the applause button again. <laughs> now, I'm going to say a really funny thing about hitting that when I had Scott Henderson on the show was he was like, I heard a female in there cheering. Females don't come to my shows to, <laughs> to cheer. It's all guys standing there with their arms folded. <laughs> I heard that too, and I in my mind I went, "Oh, that's a cool audience." Why? Oh, I know why. There's girls. <laughs> there is, yes, and that's why we got into it, wasn't it? We got into it for the girls. Well, yeah. that's what some people tell me. Maybe I did. That actually leads me onto my first question for you. My only question: um, What started the love affair with the electric guitar for you, mate? Uh, t um, I I was I was born in 1958. And my love of music comes entirely from listening to Top 40 radio uh, in the 60s. Uh, it was an amazing platform, wide open, eclectic. You'd have folk, you'd have soul, you'd have R&B, you'd have pop, you'd have rock. So it would go from B.B. King to uh, Otis Redding to Glenn Campbell to The Beatles. Uh, and then in the late 60s, it started to become, you know, Cream, Hendrix, Grand Funk, all the rock stuff showed up. But I was listening in the early 60s. I mean, even a band like Peter, Paul and Mary or uh, an artist like Petula Clark, uh, every song they did was magical to me. At, at five years old, I was absolutely in love with the radio. And it was all stuff. It was wide open back then. Cool. Every style showed up on Top 40. So uh, it was it was awesome. Awesome, man. I got, I got to say, music just isn't like that anymore. I haven't been listening to the radio much. And when I do, I'm like, oh, what happens? Um, there was some great musicianship. Thought, you you have to find, you know, it's it's curated in different silos, if you want to call them that. You know, you know, everything's in its own lane. And it's stylistically, you know, grouped with other styles. And, you know, you, you listen to your, you know, it's... I mean, it's amazing for the consumer to pull up Spotify. You know, I love using Spotify. I'm not happy with their, you know, financial compensation for creators. But you have to kind of get over that and just realize that that's the world right now. But never been a better time for for listening to music in some ways. But, yeah, you look back and you go, that was actually better <laughs> yeah yeah you, you are right if you go looking for it and you know uh where to find it i guess um there is much more available in that way but just in general just the stuff that is presented to the kids i think you know a lot of the kids that i, I teach at a special school um uh, with kids with autism and the like and um a lot of those kids are into some cool music through their parents there seems to be a whole generation of that that, that realise, oh man, yeah, the, nah, the music on the radio, general mainstream radio, isn't doing it for me. So how did you go from listening to all that stuff on the radio to picking up a guitar? At what age did you first pick up a guitar? 
I was kind of dabbling at age 10. I actually started at age 12 when I realized I couldn't be on a sports team because I wasn't tall enough. Uh, and at age 12, I went into, you know, just total obsession over the electric guitar. I had a great teacher. My only training is two years of private lessons, uh, 30 minutes a week for two years from age 12 to 14. It's not much, but I had a great teacher. I ended up being a, in a band with him later. Oh, uh, cool. Later, but... Uh, I just, I, I got obsessed in, in, in the way that it's all I did. I come home after school, play the guitar and I, all of a sudden it was dark and I was still playing the guitar and I'd, I'd be called, called in for dinner. Yeah. It just, it was, it, it became my whole life immediately at age 12. I can absolutely relate to that, mate. I was, I was the same before school, after school, at school, lunchtimes, playing first experiences playing with, with a real drummer. I remember at lunchtime and, um, playing the safaris wipeout for like the whole lunch hour and just the guy taking the drum solos and i remember all the kids crowding around and just wow listen to you guys that really gave me the bug yeah i used to play surf music on tennis rackets uh when i was a little bit younger say you know age seven eight nine i was i was i was playing surf music on tennis rackets because i didn't have a guitar yet did that progress to playing surf music on the guitar in the early days well, when I started playing guitar, I actually was getting lit up by rock at that yep. point. So, you know, rock, you know, so if you figure I started playing guitar at age 12, that was 1970. It was Cream and Eric Clapton. Cool. And Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. I think Jimi Hendrix probably was the one who, you know, when Are You Experienced came out, that's when I just went, this is for me. I just have to do this, whatever. I just got to jump in. Awesome. Sounds like my eruption moment. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. do you remember what, which, what were some of the early songs that really you were so proud that, yeah, I've got this down or, um, yeah. What sort of stuff were you playing early on? I, I joined a band when I was 14 with musicians who were quite a bit older than me and, that's not a, a unique story. You know, a lot of young musicians join bands that are, you know, of older kids when they, you know, I, I got pretty good pretty quick. And so we were playing the Rolling Stones. We were playing Hendrix. We were playing Cream. We were playing Fleetwood Mac. Basically, all the rock that was all around us all yep. the time. Cool. And did you start gigging at a young age as well? Yeah, 14. Right away. Yep. I joined a band that had been together already, had gigs. They, their guitar player dropped out, and I joined. I started playing gigs at 14. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Do you remember what your first first guitar was? Well, I did. Uh, I had a, a Sears guitar and a Sears amp, but those, quickly I realized that they were not the real stuff. And I was mowing lawns at the time, and my mom matched – my lawn mowing money and i think i bought a what would now be a vintage strat i bought a used strat for i think it was 300 dollars. she put in 150 and i put in 150. cool cool yeah. strat you know I, I firmly believe that whatever you first get in your hands kind of helps decide whether you're a fender guy or a gibson guy so you start off with strats did that sort of carry on for for many years uh, I, you know, I still use both, but a lot of the, the people that I, you know, I loved Hendrix. So a Stratocaster was my first dream, 
But then you you start listening to Eric Clapton, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top was huge for me. Cool. And so I wanted a Les Paul, and I I did get a Les Paul I think a couple of years later. And then I used BC Riches actually when really when when they came out they were they were handmade custom guitars. And then when I moved to LA at age twenty one, I went back to the Strat, and then after living here a bit, I started using the Les Paul more. So for me, it was always kind of a a back and forth constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And it still is. It still is. Man, the, you, you're known for, for your session work. How did you graduate from being a 14-year-old playing bar gigs to becoming a session guy? I moved here uh, just cold in at the end of 1979. And at that moment, L.A. was a very, you know, you look back at what L.A. was in 1980. It, it was There was a huge music infrastructure and tons of people in developments, tons of people doing rehearsals, doing gigs, trying to get record deals, writing songs, doing demos, huge buildings full of publishing companies, huge, you know, there was one street in LA that had 44 recording studios on it alone. Wow. The stretch of Burbank Boulevard, uh, no, Magnolia Boulevard in Burbank had 44 recording studios on it. So LA was Mecca for music. And when I moved here, you could kind of get in at any level and you could kind of be any kind of musician. And, and I met one musician, I got one gig and it's like a tree. It's a classic thing. Then it's like a family tree. It, it, you meet one person, they recommend you for something else that re- they recommend you for two other things, three other things. So it starts to spread out and stretch. Yep. And I realized after about six months that I was actually breaking even. And I, not only was I breaking even, but I was able to start buying gear. So it, it LA was an easy place. Of course, it wasn't easy, but in comparison to the way the world is now, it actually was an easy place to land and an affordable place to land and a great place to find music work at any level. Nice, nice. I'm in the wrong place. I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, the Gold Coast, Australia, surfing beaches for miles, all that, but not with a music scene like that, that's for sure. Well, it doesn't exist anymore. And I, I, I think you're not in the wrong place anymore because the world has changed. These days, you kind of have to do it yourself. And in some ways, it doesn't matter where you are. Although if you wanted to do gigs, you know, you could be around more musicians for that. I don't know. It, it's it's different now. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend that people move to Nashville or L.A. or New York or London it's you know the the opportunities are are smaller like now it's a more rarefied world if you're doing sessions now in la you're only one of one or two people and usually that's sight reading and film at this point the the job of session musician doesn't really exist here it does still exist in nashville but it the the budgets are are quite a bit smaller uh, and the workload is you know you have to work really fast because the budgets are smaller it's not quite as fun as it used to be for the people doing it but back to your comment about not being in the right place, I don't think it matters so much anymore. You're right. You're absolutely right. You know, just with the whole COVID thing going down, um, I'd started doing a couple of these live chat things just before then. And then when it, the world in, went into lockdown, it was just like, well, let's send out some invitations and see who wants to have a chat. And it was, it was great and sort of just spawned from there and, get to sit in, in my lounge room, drinking coffee in my pajamas and, uh, and talk to some great guests. So it has changed. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's, it's a, I love your, I love your channel. I love, love what you're doing. Thanks, mate. Thank you. 
Now, talking about your session playing and moving to LA, what was the first big song that you played on? Well, I, I had some real success early, and I did um, a bunch of stuff kind of kind of at the same time. Uh, I I went to New York to do a John Waite record, and Neil Giraldo produced it, and it was a really great rock record. And Neil Giraldo was one of the most renowned guitar players in the world at that time because of Pat Benatar and the, the songs they were doing. And that record had a minor hit on it called Change that I'm still really proud of. But while I was there in New York, I met John Bon Jovi and I did all his demos. And one of those demos became his first hit, which called, was called Runaway. And so that's probably the biggest song I, I played on back then because uh, he, he had sort of a hit with that. John Waite had sort of a hit with change and then i joined rick springfield's band and we did a record right after that and there were some i i don't know if i played on the single from rick's first record i ended up doing five records with rick uh and then after that i did kind of a kenny Loggins single so those were some of the early songs i played on and then what really helped me get work is in the late 80s i did crowded houses don't dream it's over i did that record um and all the songwriters really thought that was like the best song they'd ever heard so i kept i started doing demos for songwriters after doing that record with crowded house and uh that that really i was able to actually get the skills worked up to be a, a good studio musician because the the craft the job of being a studio musician means you go in and you come up with parts and you do what anybody wants you to do and you do it a hundred different ways immediately on demand and 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 it's a skill that 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 requ it requires a lot of digging deep within yourself and being able to get one sound and then they want you to do the opposite thing you know and then they want you to do something else and it's, it's and and it's it's you have to have a strong ego ego to get the work done but then when people reject what you're doing and ask you for something different your ego gets uh, i call it obliterated and then you bring <laughs> the ego back so I learned in the late 80s by doing song demos, sometimes three songs a day all over town for, for songwriters, uh, how to come up with parts and sounds uh, immediately and, yeah. and keep, keep, it, keep the inspiration going, hold the room, get the job done. Awesome. I got to say, you mentioned the uh, Credit House song and that's some, I love that ambient stuff you do in the background and that with all the big tremolo Thank dips. And, yeah. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. But, um, Sight reading, is that anything that you've ever had to do a lot over the years? Do you, do you read? Uh, I was never a reader, but I did records for a living, and that reading wasn't part of the record process. Record When you do records, you're, you're hired to write your parts. You don't read your parts. You look at a chord chart, which you have to read perfectly. That gets easier over time. Uh, you know, and, and you're still... Anybody on a session reading a chord chart, this first take sounds amazing. There's no, you know, you, everybody nails it the first time through. And then some of the musicians you're with are sight readers, but you don't, you know, because I did records for a living, I was hired to create my own parts. I didn't have to read parts. Now, sure. you might pick up a melody, but there was time to grab that. Now, there's a different world in L.A. that's always been there, which is the film and television world. And those those musicians sight read, and the first take sounds amazing, and the second take sounds amazing, and the third one does too. Uh, these days in LA, if you're going to work as a studio musician, you're going to be one or two or three people, one of two or three people who does movies and television, because the record thing doesn't really happen in LA anymore. Uh, it's only it's just sporadically happening. So I never had to read. That being said, 
and this is common knowledge. When you show up for a session, you have to write a, a takedown of the, the song in one take. And I have that skill, but that's not a big deal. And if you hear the song, you show up, they play it, you write it down once you go out and play it. That's so that is a, a bit of it takes a, a bit of work to get to that point. But sight reading, that's that's a different game. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you, you get hired for your taste, really, the way that you can listen to a song and just create the right part at the time yeah has there ever been moments where you've created something that has completely changed the song that you've been credited as a writer afterwards does that ever happen no the thing is it it when you show up for a session the lyrics are done the melody is done and the chords are probably mostly done, although you might re you might if you're reharmonizing something or coming up with a signature part, you're not going to get publishing. Now that being said, there have been moments in history where people have gone back and, I mean, Patrice Russian did it with for Forget Me Not, uh, but Freddie Washington did it with Patrice Russian on Forget Me Not. That was one example. There have been other examples in history where a musician has watched something become a number one hit and gone, wait, I created the hook for that. And they've gone back and they've gotten publishing. But I never, it's kind of understood when you show up that the actual lyrics, melody, and most of the harmony are done. You don't, you don't get publishing for creating a riff or, or writing you know, a substitute chord or a color part or something like that. Yeah. So... Mate, just looking around behind you, and I've seen your videos, just the amazing amount of gear that you have there, um, which is, man, that's a lifetime of collecting stuff right there. When you started out doing the session thing, what were your go-tos? Like You, you said um, that you, you had the, the street with all the studios. Did you have a nice little setup that you could go from studio to studio with, or did you rely on cartridge to, to bring whatever you wanted? What was the go back then? Yeah, let me let me just answer one more aspect of your previous question, yeah. though. The uh, there have always been royalties associated with being a musician, and really, really substantial royalties from the musicians' union domestically and from these neighboring rights societies internationally. So, uh, because I've played on over a thousand records, I have had a good royalty income over the years from uh collective bargaining agreements in the united states where you get royalties from your body of work and um what they call neighboring rights associations all over the world where every time something is played you actually get a small amount of money like i did so many celine dion records that i still get royalties for my work on celine dion records you wow know, cool. that's yep. um so it's that was an unexpected benefit of being, you know, a musician during the time period, you know, during the era that the last 40 years, some of that still exists, although the, the union stuff, not as much anymore. So back to your new question. Uh, it was different at different times in the eighties. Basically we used Marshalls and fenders and whatever guitars we had and the limited amount of pedals we had then in the eighties, Right mid eighties, the rack gear showed up and then you were obsessed with your rack and you spent so much money trying to have a rack that was like Lukather's rack or everybody's rack or then like Dan Huff's rack when he was busy. So it was an arms race in the eighties. And yes, I had a, a large rig. I had an amazing rack 
a lot of guitars, you know, and it was always cartage because literally I would bring more than the drummer, you know, maybe five, five times the amount of gear any drummer would bring, uh, uh racks, amps, uh, at, at, at the height of it, I probably brought 40 guitars, nine heads, three pedal boards, a rack, two racks. It, it was just, it was, uh, everybody and then the percussionists in town were um, were most known for literally filling the room with their cases because it's you know they would have percussion from all over the world in cases and it would, it would just literally fill the rooms wow wow how times have changed you get guys now that uh, just turn up with their their modelers or um i guess that's the beauty of of your setup there with with all your gear yeah it's all there isn't it and people can just send you the files and yeah I, I i prefer to have people interacting with me when i do a session um for several reasons uh now there are there are people that are kind of are, are so loyal to me that i will do a session without them there and turn it around but the problem with as a guitar player with turning around a song by yourself is that Guitar is open-ended, and the possibilities are kind of astronomically more infinite than if you're a bass player or a drummer. And I'll give you an example. If Even if I'm in a studio doing the work with the artist and the producer and the engineer and the musicians, typically what would happen in a studio, and it still happens today, and guitar players talk about this, and you don't complain, a bass player and drummer are basically first-take animals they they get their parts in the first take it might be the second take but the guys we work with it's there in the first take and then you just change a few things and you get it so in a three-hour session a bass player and drummer can do easily do three songs and spend most of the time laughing drinking coffee listening back texting most of the time they're just just in between songs the guitarist, however, the guitarist's work begins when their work ends because guitar parts, like, w does it sound too much like U2? Does it sound not enough like Bruno Mars? Is it too clean? Is it too dirty? Okay, we got that part. What about the other nine parts? What about the doubled acoustics? We need that extra something in the second verse. How long is it going to take to find that? It's, how long is it going to take to find the part that you've never heard on any other record that's so unique that people love it on the second verse? Are you doing that while the other music musicians are waiting for the next track? So literally one song for a guitar player is like eight songs. Mm. And, and it's always been that way. Now, if you work by yourself as a guitar player and they send you the track, not only are you playing the parts, you're producing them. So you're doing eight songs because it's doubled guitars, new part in the bridge, extra stuff in the vamp, color parts, ambient parts, rhythm parts, special thing in the intro. It's 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 open. And then what era do your parts emulate? Do you do parts from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s? Bass and drums are sort of the same in every era. But guitars, it's radically different sound and part and concept and approach-wise. 
So you're making those decisions without the artist being there, without the producer being there. Working by myself never really worked for me only because I couldn't charge enough to make it worth my while. Uh, So I either always required them to come over or to be with me on Skype. Like if it was somebody in Europe or wherever, I would have them be there with me on Skype so that they share responsibility for the parts. Because if they do share responsibility, you can actually get the work done. You're not spinning your wheels for an hour on something that they're not even going to use. And I just, I, my time is my most valuable asset. So at a certain point, I just couldn't do that. Yeah, right. Awesome. Uh, have you ever worked on a track and thought that you've completely delivered the perfect parts and you go, yeah, that, that's just brought it to a new level only to have the producer go, oh, no, nah, not really feeling that. Does that happen often? Often it's, it's the job. Yep. Yeah. More than often. Yeah. Yeah. That's why uh, most musicians can't actually do that job. It's just, it's too, it's too heartbreaking for most musicians to actually play the thing they think is the best thing that for the song in the moment and be told that it's not appropriate and they have to come up with something else immediately. That's the job. Yep. So you touched on ego earlier and I guess a lot of it, is leaving the ego at the door, isn't it? And just going, no, this no, is what this guy no, wants. No. What I actually said was your, your ego has to be super strong to deliver the parts and then it gets obliterated and then you have to bring it back 100% immediately when you create the next part. So yeah. it's, not as, it's, it's not actually leaving your ego at the door. It's actually having your ego get obliterated and then bringing it back 100% multiple times throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it takes a certain person to be able to do that. I, I've worked with guys yeah. in bands who just won't take constructive criticism at all. Yeah. And yeah. you've got to be the absolute opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, Tim, with um, the amount of home recording that goes on these days and then people sending you tracks to play on and they, they tweak on it some more, do you have a preferred mix engineer that you tell people, oh, this needs to go to so-and-so? Is there somebody that you work with, uh, Leslie? The, the thing about mixing, it's kind of a mercurial thing, and it's so – I wouldn't recommend a mixer because it, there's too much responsibility associated with that. So like Chris Lord Algae lives down the street from me, and a lot of people hire Chris, and what he does is very, very exciting and very wonderful. But I don't know if he's going to deliver, you know – you're in the business of making somebody's dream come true when you work on a song for them. And the mix, the mixer is the last, the last person that's going to make that dream come true. So it's a, it's a huge responsibility. So personally, I don't recommend mixers. I know a lot of them. Yep. You know, I know Bob Clear Mountain. I know Chris Lord Algae. I know a lot of, a lot of great mixers. Jack Joseph Puig, I would go down to his studio, you know, and actually work on the mixes in secret because that's one of, one of his tricks for making songs sound great was to add guys like me at the very end to, you know, to make it kind of blossom, you know? Yep. So and I've done that with Chris too. Um, but as far as recommending a mixer, that's, that's it's really, I, I, I've never been able to do that. No. Do you ever mix your own stuff? No. No? Always hand it over. Well, the, the, the thing is, I think I need to let you know, I'm in a different business now. The thing is, I, I did session work for 40 years, 
And I started a web business 12 years ago. So when I make music, I, I record it and I write it and record it and mix it, but it ends up uh, in my YouTube videos. I open every YouTube video with a, not everyone, but many of my YouTube videos are opened with something that I wrote and I mix those myself. Cool. Yeah. So cool. I'm kind of, I am kind of doing it now. I, I get to be an artist now. Yep. Yep. So you were very early in adapting to the whole YouTube side of things. Um, what made you get into that? Well, I think we all are aware of what changed in the music business as far as not as much money on the front end to pay people, basically. And I at, at about 12 years ago, I saw some people doing really, really well uh, on with membership teaching sites and YouTube channels. And I just I got so inspired and so excited by that. I just kind of did a, a double shift for 10 years and did both the session thing and the the online thing. I did that for 10 years, but now it's moved more to the online thing because frankly, it, it's a product rather than a service. So it earns money without me being there. Cool. And as well as I did as a musician, uh, in every, my best years as a musician have been the last three years. And that's the balance has been more the web to, to session work. Session work for me is, is either now for so you got to remember, I did it for 40 years. Not only did I do it for 40 years, I did it seven days a week. I went 12 years without a vacation doing sessions seven days a week. So it's, it's, it was, you know, I've done over a thousand records. I, wow. I, I was deep into this thing. Um, but I got used to a certain, you know, we, we got paid really well. And not only did we get paid really well, but the records we were doing made it out into the world and people heard them. You know, I would do a record and be on the radio charting within months, if not weeks. And so when that started to change and when budgets got smaller, I decided to make the transition. Now, that being said, I did just a few months ago, I did 30 songs with Bob Dylan live off the floor for two different projects. So I still do sessions but i choose them now and and basically the web business is is a better place for me at this point but you have to remember that's because i did this i did this for 40 years yeah yeah do you do you ever find yourself um out somewhere and there's a radio on in the background like at a shop or, or something like that and you hear some music and you go i don't remember playing that but that's that's me does that happen? Yeah, it happened to me the other night at a party. They had they had a, a crowded house album cut. It wasn't "Don't Dream It's Over." It was one of their album cuts. I know it was something so strong, which yep. which was actually sort of a single for them. Yep. And it popped up, and we were talking, and I was able to actually say, "Yeah, I'm playing on that," and everybody was kind of like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 one of the it's been one of the greatest things. You would be at Trader Joe's, which is a big you know store and you'd hear something you played on or you would be you know i one of the songs i played on that's one of my favorite things was um iris by the goo goo dolls and that was on the radio more than any other song the year it came out uh, and you would hear it everywhere mm -hmm. you'd be in the car you'd be you'd hear it everywhere so that 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 was always one of the most joyful things about being a guitar player doing sessions absolutely yes awesome awesome and if you've forgotten that that's something that you've played on what's the giveaway is there is there a touch is there a sound that you use what gives away that that it's you it's in my particular case it's some sort of remembrance like why do i know this song so well it sounds really familiar you go oh 
Oh, that's right. That's that Uncle Cracker song that we did. Yeah, that's it. That, so in my case, it's not really. It's more. I hear something. Oh, that's Shine Down. Oh, that's that Shine Down record. Oh, that's Rod Stewart. That's Broken Air. Oh, yeah, that's the. So it's more a a, a something triggers in my memory. Like I knew this. I know this song. Why do I know this song? Oh, <laughs> I'm playing on it. Yeah, sure, it's awesome. sure. Really and have you ever played on songs that? haven't had the vocals put on there yet so you don't know what's going down and then you hear it afterwards and go oh is that how it goes i didn't picture the vocals being like that or are they always done yeah yeah no it's 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 always been both i mean there's you know percentage wise probably 40 percent of the stuff you plan might not have vocals it's better if it does because you need to shape your parts around it but sure uh, it doesn't really uh you generally would know if you, just because you knew the artist like so if i was working on a ricky martin song you know or whatever or a um miley cyrus song i was very aware when the record came out to listen for you know i knew that i was on those tracks whether the, the vocal was on there or not yep awesome Tim, we've got a couple of questions in the chat that I'm going to get to. So if anybody's watching live and they want to ask some questions, please do that now. But um, before I do that, I had something in my head and then I just distracted myself. Well, you'll get it back. You'll get it back. Yeah, the, the joy of having ADHD. <laughs> I'm easily distracted. Oh, yeah, the, the, the lockdown has, has made us all that way. Absolutely. It has. It has. Mate, when it comes to gear and uh, now there's, there's all the modelers, etc., You've got some great pieces of gear there. You're hearing a difference between somebody who does a whole record using a modeler and somebody who actually uses oh, yeah. the real gear. Yeah, real yeah. Deal. It's still they still haven't gotten them to the place where you know the 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 actual sound of an amplifier hitting a speaker, hitting a microphone, hitting a mic pre and then coming back in still has a complexity to it. The thing about distortion on guitar particularly in the top end, it's so complex mm. and so sophisticated that they're getting better at modeling it and simulating it, but it still sounds different. And I do, I have a vault downstairs with five 412 cabinets and a Vox 212 cabinet. So my sounds downstairs are jet engine loud through these amps and all through microphones, through mic pre's, mostly Neve clones. Uh, and, and yes, there is still a difference. That being said, I am a, a super fan of technology. And I'm particularly enamored with Fractal, the XFX3, the FM3, and now the new FM9. And I actually just started a course today on the FM3 because I, I love, as much as I love real sounds, I love artificial sounds. It's just different. It's, I mean, and I've even had people, I had a producer friend, Matt Serletic, he produced you know, all the Rob Thomas stuff, the Santana stuff. Matchbox 20, all this stuff. He came here to the house. The last time he came here, we were doing a share song. And it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe a couple of years ago. And with all this stuff sitting here, he made me use my Kemper profiler because to him, now that's what sounds modern. Yeah, right. And I have no, no problem with that. Because it's artificial, it sounds modern. I have no problem with that whatsoever. None. I love the palette change of hearing a direct in your face artificial guitar sound. So mm. I'm a fan. And these things every year they get better. I'm I'm a super fan of of the the technology and and the world that involves none of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's getting close. It's getting close. But you're right, the complexity of the top end. The other thing is the dynamics is the thing I hear um 
when I'm palm muting and sort of trying to get yeah. that gunk, gunk, gunk. Yeah. An amp with big transformers just has this thing where the, the sound pops forward. It doesn't get sucked in. And when I'm listening for those kinds of little things when using various modelers, I'm going, ooh, it doesn't have that thing. But right. I'm noticing yeah. it. Nobody else would probably notice it. Uh, and that kind of leads on. Uh, Michael Dolce is watching, who's the uh, the guitarist on The Voice Australia. Fantastic. Awesome. Fantastic nice guitar player. Uh, and he says that Guitarland is one of the best albums he owns, and it taught me a lot about placement and layering. So there's a bit of a, a nice compliment from Michael. Thank you so much. I can only imagine how great you are, and, and I know the workload of the, the band that does The Voice here. Occasionally I do some recording for The Voice when – the band is sleeping and they have a deadline. <laughs> it's crazy how hard these guys work. So I can only imagine how hard you work and and how quickly you have to. It's it's amazing. That's the kind of musician I'm talking about. You got to learn stuff really quickly and nail yeah. it. And yeah. So I, nice to meet you. And I'm sure you're you're a great guitar player. I uh, actually did a live chat with with Michael not that long ago, and he was saying exactly that. Just having to. Yeah. Produce the goods there and then. Uh, his next question, I think you've just covered with, uh, do you ever lean towards digital amps uh, for any tones? We all know you have a plethora of amps in your studio to satisfy the taste buds. I think you just answered that. Oh, man. It's just, it's so amazing, especially for clean stuff. Like if I want to get a an 80s clean sound, I'll put up my, my Axe FX3 and I'm in heaven. But not only that, it's... I like artificial distorted sounds. If you just keep tweaking it until you get rid of some of the, you know, that thing that happens or whatever, you just have to shape it so that it's EQ'd right. I love the, the, the artificial sounds and they're getting better all the time. So yeah, it's a great new world for all that stuff. Yeah, you can dive in quite deep. I've got a Kemper sitting right here. I've had all the helixes and the, the axe effects, etc. And as much as I do like to just have the immediacy of having a nice head and turning it on, just going, well, that just sounds good. You can di dive really deep in and tune. Oh, when I'm listening to, to distorted guitar sounds, there's a certain element of cat hiss, I call it. Uh, <laughs> that happens and you can tune that you know that that makes or breaks a distortion for me whether that is musical and pleasing and sits in the track or whether uh it's just annoying and fatiguing to the ear so little things like yeah, that yeah again, we're talking about the top end once again mm. i'm going to say one more thing about that but there's uh, music therapy is asking about neil giraldo and stories i don't know if you watched my neil giraldo video but go to my youtube channel there's a neil giraldo video just about three videos back where he and I talk about the time we spent together. So just watch that and you'll, you'll, you'll get some good stories. It's awesome. We, we had a nice reunion. Um, the thing about end user music sources now and Spotify is not so much, but YouTube, which everybody watches because the end user we're in our studios and we basically are hearing um, high definition audio. But the end user is hearing it on YouTube or Spotify or mm. Apple Music, and it gets the, you know the bit rate. It gets it becomes more low definition. And one of my theories about why rock music is not as popular right now is that distorted guitars don't sound as good on the end user you know platforms now because they're not as hi-fi. If you were able to listen to distorted guitars the way you hear them in your studio. They sounded that way on YouTube. 
there would be a, a musicality to it. But what happens is particularly distorted guitar on YouTube, it gets pixelated. And it probably does on Spotify too. It probably does on, we've gotten used to it, but I think that's, that's if we ever get to a point where end user, you know, audio is high definition, uh, distorted guitar and rock might make a comeback because it, it's, it's, you know, it sounds better. Mm. I did see a question go by there about your thoughts on um, music without guitar in it. And that's probably why there's a lot of music on the radio now that doesn't have guitar. Is I believe so. I believe yeah. it because it's, it's, it just doesn't sound as good. And, and it's also a pendulum that swings back and forth too. I mean, if, if guitar and particularly distorted guitar was popular for 30 or 40 years, there's nothing, you know, there's no law that says it has to stay popular, you know, but I think part of it, part of the reason people don't gravitate towards it is that it does, it's exactly what you were just talking about. It does, it can become less pleasing and especially on these low definition platforms. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Absolutely. Now, just talking about guitar sounds, I, I know there's a new generation of groups like, um, what are those guys called? Greta Von Fleet, is it? Yeah, you of know, course. Yeah. And they're sort of, tipping the hat towards the, the 70s style of guitar playing. And yeah. I, I quite often, I said about the radio being terrible now. That's commercial radio. I, I do listen to a rock station locally and I quite often find myself shazamming things and going, well, that's interesting. What's that? And I've been rediscovering a lot of the, the classic stuff um, that, so I was born in 73. So I, I wasn't old enough to, to appreciate all the Led Zeppelin and the Deep Purples. Mm-hmm. But a, f- a lot of friends of mine who had older brothers do. And I find myself every now and then come, this is great. What is this, Shazam? Oh, this is this is Led Zepp. That's great. So it's good to see some young guys out there rocking uh, that are flying that flag again. Yeah, and we might get, at a certain point, it might take a little while longer, but there, there might be a rock superstar band that emerges, you know. Mm-hmm. They're not as big of a band. You know, these bands are not as big as, they, uh, as rock big rock bands used to be but that could change there could be a uh, there could be another u2 or another foo fighters or another huge band in our future absolutely so somebody on there was asking us to pull out some guitars and have a jam but the whole thing is latency when it comes to the streaming thing have have you clicked on any ways that you can actually collaborate with anybody online and get around the whole latency thing are you aware of anything Um, that's around now the thing is, I don't need to do that. The thing is, it's if we, we go back to your friend on the voice, if he's if he's on a chat or he's on a you, you know on in an interview, he's just spent the last eighteen hours and the last eighteen days, eighteen hours a day playing. So I, I just there's no reason for me to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what you got to realize that if you're doing this, if you're living and breathing this for your whole life, you know why would you collaborate? You know, in that case, I would just have you. If you wanted me to collaborate with you, I'd just have you send me the file, and I would do it tomorrow morning in my pajamas. So, yep, yep. Because yeah, you I don't. Can. I, I I think you know. I just. I mean, you probably could do it if you wanted to. All it would take is for everybody. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I. I you know, it's not. You know. Yeah. Not something. Yeah, I was just interested in whether you knew of some technologies because that is something that comes up quite a lot. People go, oh, you should do live jam. And I think I've seen Herman Lee actually doing some live streaming where he's jamming with people. And it's just like, 
how's he doing that and not having the the latency just throw every, everybody out? Maybe I should shoot him an email and ask him. Well, it's funny because if you're playing, I mean, I was going to say if everybody was three seconds late and that was all synced. I mean, that's how I do have friends who actually do sessions that way. But the people in the other studio, you know, they're getting it three seconds late, but it doesn't bother the musician because they have the session in front of them on their hard drive. So it doesn't matter that the clients are hearing it late. But as far as musicians playing together, um, that's a hard one because how would you get the other guy moved forward? Because mm. you're still going to be in real time. And even if your thing is delayed three seconds, how are you going to listen to it? Uh, yeah, it kind of makes me kind of yep. insane. It explodes. It. Yeah, absolutely. That's a question for somebody else. <laughs> Damon Michael wants to know your favorite session you ever did and your proudest moment on record. Uh, you know, I've had people ask me that kind of thing. And yep. for me, they were all the same. I, and, I, and I have a story. I did a Bruce Springsteen record, and it was a dream come true for me. And he was super nice. Uh, the record's called Human Touch. It was like this period where he stopped using the E Street Band for a little while. And the, the piano player in the E Street Band was a friend of mine, and he would hire me for all this stuff. Stevie Nicks, Patti Smythe, all this stuff. Roy Bitten. And Roy hired, brought me into a Springsteen record, and I played on Bruce's record. And the very next day... I went to a songwriter's house and did a song in his bedroom. There was a demo because I did why well, I still did demos when I was doing big records. And to me, there, there was no difference. I always thought everybody was equal and every experience was equal. So I'm not, I'm honestly not trying to be coy or I'm not, this is, this is the absolute truth. There, there were no favorites. Wow. Every experience with everybody was, a beautiful collaborative work process. And, you know, it, it would be amazing to show up and sit there and go, oh, I'm just playing, I'm playing on a Bruce Springsteen song and he's talking to me right now and telling me that he likes this way and he doesn't like this and we're getting the work done and and I, I, I can't even believe I'm here. It was that way in the spring. Like I said, I did 30 songs with Bob Dylan in May and we all sat in a circle and recorded off, live off the floor and I was literally three feet from him. Uh, I got to watch him rewrite lyrics. I got to watch him sing, play harmonica, play piano. It, it, that it was like stepping into a dream. So I guess there are situations where you you go, yeah, I'm doing something. Everything this guy does is history. Every single thing he does is history. But for me and my life it's it really has no more weight or importance than you know a song i do for my friend's daughter yeah you know at, yep. just as a favor you know in in my studio or in, yeah awesome awesome is there anything out there that um that people don't realize is you that that you really wish they knew it was you no 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 because i i i reach a massive amount of people on YouTube. Yep. I, I, I kind of don't, I don't have that need or want anymore. Um, I, I actually reach people directly in large numbers with, yep. with music that I write and perform. Yep. And so uh, it is being a studio musician, you are anonymous and there is lots of stuff you do that people don't know about. I mean, 
I did a song with Meatloaf that was a big song called um, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Wouldn't Do That. Yep. And I looked at the Wikipedia the other day and they didn't credit me on that song. And I was a bit disappointed because I know I, I actually quit the project because I didn't want to stay up late. I was working, doing all kinds of other session work. And Jim Steinman, the songwriter and producer, really liked to get going at midnight and work till dawn. And I just couldn't do that. So after we did the tracking, I did some overdubs and I quit the project. Just, you know, I just wasn't available. And and Eddie Martinez did the rest of it. And and I'm sure I'm on that song, but I didn't get credit for it. So that was that was kind of um, disappointing to see. This was just a week ago. Uh, oh, well. And then there were other... The thing is, as, as a studio musician, you get very accustomed to that. But in the era that we were all really busy doing this, people would read the credits. Now, when CDs showed up, the credits became infinitesimally small and you yeah. couldn't read them. And that was a disappointment for musicians also. And then and then we come to the era now where people don't even know who it's it's even more anonymous now for people but those of us in the industry would always find out who played on what like i remember there was this pink song that had the most amazing guitars on it and i i didn't stop till i find out found out who played the guitars on this pink song yep and it was my friend kevin dukes cool and a guy i've known forever so i don't i accepted that as part of the job if you're a studio musician they're not going to know who you are Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, when the industry was a much more social industry and people were bumping into each other at studios all the time, you would literally go on your own campaign and tell people, I played on that, I played on that. And they would tell people. So the word got out in the industry when you played on something. Mm -hmm. And that, that's how we solved that problem, all of us who were playing on stuff. Yep. But you're dead right. When I was a kid, you'd buy the, the vinyl and you'd sit there and you'd be going through all the, the credits. And I knew the names of all these studio musicians. Uh, and now, like you say, you, you hear something on the radio and you think, man, that's really cool. Who is that? And it's really hard to find out who it is. And there's probably yeah, some, some great guys who could be getting a lot more recognition. Uh, when I had Lee Sklar on a, f a few months ago, he, he said um, – when he first played on a James Taylor record that his name was on the, the record and that's when the, the phone started ringing. People would look at it and go, Oh, yeah. But here in LA word would spread, you know, because the people we were celebrated as musicians and the word would spread. Everybody wanted to know who played what parts on what record and in the industry, everybody knew. So you didn't even really need that. You just needed, you just need, people were talking all the time and musicians were doing stuff. Lee is coming over tomorrow to do a bass part that I'm playing on. It's just convenient. I'm going to play guitar in a, a session tomorrow. It's actually for a major league baseball player and Lee is going to come and do his bass part here tomorrow. Cool. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Small world. Well, yeah. I guess LA is known for that, isn't it? That's where you are, LA, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, when you were doing a lot more work in the in the studios, was there a favorite studio that you'd go, "Oh yes, I'm off absolutely. to"? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this you know, you've I've 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 kind of I've kind of bent the the answers to your questions on a lot of these. I hope I'm not disappointing you. No, but you're the, not the, at all. Not at all. Answer yes. Sunset Sound, absolutely, hands down. Sunset Sound. Really, and why why is <laughs> yeah. that? Well, it's an old old building with a huge parking lot. 
and you pull up right to the door and the guy who ran the place forever, he actually passed away. The guy that, who ran the front desk forever was a guy we all knew. It was just like, it, it was just not pretentious. And yet you'd walk in and they had done Led Zeppelin and The Doors and Prince. The records on the wall were jaw dropping. You'll see on the internet footage of people, you know, filming. I've even filmed all the records on the wall. Van Halen, you know, yeah. Led Zeppelin, yep. you know, Prince. It just, it's endless. And all the rooms are great and they're they're funky old rooms and the staff is amazing and the headphones sound great. And you have direct access to your car in the parking lot, a huge parking lot. And the common area outdoors is wonderful. It's not pretentious at all. And yet it's, you know, home to the best records ever made. Now, there are other studios like that, too. There's a place called Conway that has a big garden and three rooms surround a garden. And that's great. The outdoor areas. Capital is great in the basement, but you're kind of locked in and you have the security of a corporation surrounding you. And then you have Henson, which is great. It's the Jim Henson company. They have four rooms. That's where The Voice does all their work. But it's a bit of a cave and, and dark. It's, it's, it was just always nice to be in studios for me where you could walk out into the sunshine easily. Mm -hmm. And not only did Sunset Sound have these great old consoles and great vibe and 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 then you're, you know, the thing is a place like Sunset Sound, there's three rooms. So you're going to walk outside and see, oh, there's that, there's John Bryan. Oh, oh, there's, uh, you know, Abel Bor Oh, there's Lee Sklar. Oh, there's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, that, that, that was always kind of the great thing about these multiple rooms and studios. It's like, you know, you'd walk past, I was at, I'm working at, at Ocean Way and, oh, there's Mick Jagger. Huh? Hey, how are you? Wow. Like it, it's, you know, it's, it, it was, it was always great for that, but, but hands down my favorite studio. I mean, there've been others for different reasons, but it's Sunset Sound. Nice. Historic. Yeah. I think I saw it. I, I briefly went to LA a few years ago to go to Nam. Um, I actually crossed paths with you in the Sir booth and got a, a quick little photo with you. Don't expect you oh, to remember okay. that, but um yeah, I remember we had Uber drivers, and the other guys I was with was a bass player and a drummer. Uh, and we did drive past a couple of places like Capitol and Sunset, and sure. I remember seeing them and just going, oh, you got to stop the car. And they're just like, no, 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 man, we're going to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, next time I come here, I'm hiring a car myself so I can at least go to the car park of Sunset and go, yes, and just breathe in all the, the atmosphere of the people that have been there previously. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. Uh, there's a very short and sharp question there from Bernie that just says pedals. Now that can mean a lot of different things, but sure. um, do you want to talk pedals and see if there's, is there anything that yeah. are your go-tos? Am I a what? Are, you, what? are there any pedals that, that are your go-tos? Oh yeah, totally. Totally. I use a uh, version of a microamp, which just pushes the front end of my amps. I use that a lot. I use a Nobles. ODR one Vermeram has created a version of that with John Shanks. It's called the ODS one, which I love. Um, the most distortion I love, and there are clones of that. There's the Karma pedal, which is a, a good clone of that. I have the Universal Audio Audio Starlight Golden and Astra in front of me. I love those pedals. Uh, I have a Boss Vibrato sitting there. There's a Broadcast sitting here, which is cool. I use the old Line Six Echo Park for infinite delay. Cool. Um, yeah, I I will say this about pedals. I like drive pedals that 
basically explode the front end of the amp. And when I say that, I don't mean distortion. I don't mean fuzz. I mean something that actually makes the amp sound like the same amp, but with more drive. And yep. so the pedals that I push it with generally don't compress. They have lots of bottom end and they basically light up or explode or push the front end of the amp, the front input of the amp. Now I will say this, I used to use tube screamers back in the eighties and maybe the early nineties. And I've owned a couple of the Holy Grail clones and I sold them because they sounded very nasally to me and they don't have a, a much bottom end. Uh, so that, that style of pedal never worked for me. I have friends who have their clones and they enjoy them, but that's not what I'm talking about. The reason I like the, the Nobles ODR one, which has been cloned with the Shanks ODS one. And I think some others too, the Wampler bell is supposed to be like that. And there's a Norland pedal. that's supposed to be like the ODR one. The reason I like them is they sound really natural. They sound like, you know, late sixties, uh, kind of kinds of distortion. And we all have to thank Tom Bukovac for that. Cause he turned us all onto the ODR one many, many years ago. Cool. Cool. Are are you printing your effects like your ambience reverbs delays when you do sessions or do you add them afterwards? Yes and no. When I work at home in Pro Tools, I like to use Echo Boy for delay because there's nothing worse than printing delay and then regretting it. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm working for a client, they need to have everything finished. So the way I use delays is I do not want to hear a single trail. Now, if I do hear a trail, that's inevitable sometimes, but I I use the delay only so it makes the guitar part float. Yep. I do not want to hear a single delay trail ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I, I hide it in different ways. You know, I don't set it loud enough. I set it loud enough so it makes the guitar uh, float a little bit. But if there's a delay trail, usually the music supersedes it when I stop playing. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. So I'm using the delay and it sounds like, ooh, it sounds spacious. But when I play that last note, you don't hear the trail because the music is loud enough and the delay is quiet enough. Yep. So I like not printing it these days because there's nothing worse than having a guitar too wet that they can't dry up. These days, I would rather have a client. You know, most people have the same plugins. Most people have Echo Boys. So, uh, and then to make it even more accurate, I will put delays on rhythm parts because that's part of the sound. That's part of the the package yep. but on a solo i like delay to be in virtual so that it can be negotiated later awesome and i guess for somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about i guess that would be a case of turning up the delay to the point where you can hear it and then just backing it off a db or two so that's you can no longer hear it but if you were to turn it off you go oh what changed right yeah it really makes the guitar kind of float yep and sound spacious yeah and my delay trails here's the other trick the delay has to have modulation on it it has to be darkened so you this this is the secret to doing what i'm talking about the reason the delays disappear in the track after i stop playing is because they have very little top end they're darkened mm -hmm. they're also modulated so it, it creates a kind of chorusing that doesn't sound like chorusing yep. it makes the guitar thick and wide and fat and there is a pitch modulation in there but it's separate from the original sound it's coming from the the course is on the delay only the yep. modulation like yep. everybody does this so yep. it's, there's nothing unique mm. about it yeah that's why you don't hear the delay because it's if the top end has been rolled off yeah do you roll the, the the top end off yourself uh in a mix or 
do you use pedals that naturally have that, like a an analog style delay? Well, the delay has to have a tone control on it, and most analog delay pedals, a lot of them don't. You have to be able to. It's it's a is it a low, it's a high cut, yep. and it has to have modulation too. And a lot of pedals don't. A lot of delay pedals don't have that. It's, now some analog pedals, the signal the the delay trail is dark just by design. But I do it on the actual pedal. It has to be a pedal that, like, this Starlight Echo Station has all that. It has, you can roll off the top end and you can turn up the modulation. So, they know, these guys know that now. They know, what, everybody likes the same thing. I'm not unique in this. Yeah, yeah. You know, i got to say, um, I've got some multi-effects units. I've got some analog pedals, uh, all the usual stuff. That's the one thing. I've got, uh, what is it? MXR carbon copy, and I just cannot, for the life of me, get any of my digital units to recreate that sound. Uh, there's just a certain choo, 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 as it as it fades, as each repeat fades, and I just right. cannot get. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, when you find the one that works for you, it can be the one forever. Like my my Line Six Echo Park, that's a forever pedal. The thing I have to say about gear and pedals is is there are things that you will find as a musician that will work for the rest of your life. And that will never be surpassed. It might be a certain amp or a certain pedal or a certain guitar. And it's a mistake to think that, oh, the next thing's going to be better. Because there are there are pieces of gear that you will find in your life that will never be surpassed. Yep. Awesome. And what what pieces what is that for you? Well, it's it's some of the pedals I'm talking about, like the 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 ODR one or any clone of that by Nobles. Uh the uh, my divided by thirteen amp is is has been that way. Before that, it was a Naylor Superdrive sixty. Um, there's certain things like I have this Park eighty five one hundred here. Um, these UA pedals could be that. You know, certainly there will be nothing that ever surpasses a Digitech Whammy for that sound. Yeah, there'll be nothing that ever surpasses this big uh, Electro Harmonix synth pedal that sits there. There won't be anything that surpasses my Russian big muff that's sitting there. Uh, I've got one of those sitting right up here, mate, and I picked it up yeah. for free recently. Somebody, a uh, friend of mine, buys storage containers not knowing what's in them. And I was at his place. He, he's going, oh, go for a walk in there and see if there's anything that you want. And he had all these old pedals and things. And I, I got the big green Russian um, big muff pedal. Oh, man, it's it's like a tank. I love it. Love it. Sounds amazing. Uh, another one is the Boss Vibrato, the VB2. I have real VB2s. I have two of them, but the the Wazacraft one that they reissued, I'm sure, is better. Yep. So it's not. It, it, it's like a a Boss VB2. That's you know the new version. That's what I'm talking about. That will never be surpassed by anything else. Yep. That that vibrato sound is just it's it's amazing. Yeah. Right. But you've got so many cool amps there. If you had to. Go do a session and just use one out of everything you've got there. What, what's the one? I have three of the same divided by 13. There's one on the floor right here. So I, I, t I have three because I, I, when I was more active doing sessions, I would have one at Cartage, one in the garage for the trunk of my car, and one here at the studio. So I had to have three of them. I still have three of them. Uh, I put a divided by 13 in my car. It's the RSA 23 and I take a cabinet with it. That's the, the, the amp that I take to sessions when I'm just 
taking one amp and then I take my pedal board and whatever guitars I decide to take. The divided by 13 RSA 23 was designed by Frederick and Rusty Anderson. And uh, it's, it's my favorite divided by 13. I've tried other ones, but that's a lifetime amp. And that's the one that I can trust to take two to sessions. That's going to sound, it's going to be the base, you know, the base, you know, like, you're, you know, whatever paint colors you're creating, there's a base. Yep. It's the base. And then, then the pedals do the rest. Cool. Cool. What is it about that amp? Uh, is there a unique breakup about the distortion or anything like that that just can't be replicated? Or it sounds warm and sweet and open. It's not compressed. Uh, it 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 distorts in a musical way, and it's 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 warm. Yeah, I was gonna say it's warm and musical. The, the drive it doesn't get that distorted, but the basic drive is warm and musical. It can sound boxy. It can sound Fendery, and then if you wanted to sound Marshally, you just you just turn on a pedal. Awesome. Now, somebody has just asked about strings, and I'll go a little bit further than that. Do you um, use different gauge strings for different sounds? Uh, same with picks. I've heard some guys say that, oh, for this part, I'll use a lighter pick because it needed this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, does that apply to you? Totally. Uh, you know, 10 through 46 is a very stable um gauge for doing rhythm and everything holds together and rings nicely uh, 9 through 42 is better for soloing and getting around the neck fast as you can i use elixirs because my hands sweat a lot and it was kind of life-changing for me that's another piece of gear that hasn't been surpassed yet i'm, I'm thinking diadario will come up with a coated electric string any minute now that i'll be able to use but the, the actual coating is so smooth on the elixirs and I used to hire somebody, you know, twice a month for about eight hours a day to, to restring my guitars. And then when I moved to Elixirs, uh, I rarely changed strings because they last forever. So it was a life changing thing. Yep. Uh, and and particularly the problem with having strings that your hands ruin with sweat is that Let's say you pick up a guitar and you do some great parts on it. You put it down. So then you're in under pressure in the heat of the battle in the hot seat the next day. And you pick up that guitar and you go, oh, the strings are toasted. I can't even tune this thing. And it's a it's a horrible it's it, there's a real, you know, downside to that. So it, it really was life changing when I switched to Elixirs. Mm-hmm. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm the same. I, I've been using those uh, and I'm very lucky. I don't have the, the rusty sweat generally. Strings mm-hmm. will last me a long time, but right. elixirs, man, I can use those until they snap. The only time I'll change those is because they, they break. Yeah, it's, I, I love them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's some common mistakes that you hear other people making that they could easily fix in their in their recordings from, from a guitarist? Well, I don't really I don't really hear people make mistakes. Yep. So in the world I'm in, people don't really make mistakes. Yep. Uh, so I, I guess I have to, I, I'd have to ask you to rephrase that. So like, uh, for instance, most people, if I hear doing home recording, they'll have way too much low end. That's interfering with the bass guitar and it's not sitting in there. Yeah, I've been in, in a rarefied world for a long time. The people I work with, you know, it's, I work with the best people in the world. I'm not trying to be egotistical, but I'm, yep. I'm not around those people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You don't hear <laughs> other people's homes. It's just how it is. It's how it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, let me see. 
is if anybody has any other questions there for Tim, I, I did say I would keep this under 90 minutes for him and where the time is ticking away. So now's your chance to get in any last questions. But um, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned the masterclasses that you're doing. That's on your website or on your YouTube page. How do people find those? The way it works is if you Google me, you find everything. Yep. So it, it's simple. But the YouTube channel is entertainment and just goodwill and knowledge transfer and fun. Yep. And But that's what brings people to the masterclass. And there's a link with, below every YouTube video. If you want to check out the masterclass, there's a 14-day free trial. And just guitar education. It's it's over 120 hours of lessons and, and, and tutorials and content. Um, it's probably about 130 hours now because I keep adding to it. So I've got like 1,700 videos on it. You can't find the edges of it. It's huge. Wow. Wow. I've been, you know, I started 12 years ago and I've been building it. Ever, so that's the monetized site. And I have about 3,000 members now and it, it keeps growing yep. every month. And the idea is that people come and they stay in. You know, they, uh, they, they, it's a membership that they stay in. And, yep. uh, and as I told you, I have four employees. I have one full time film editor. I have a tablature guy uh, who's great. I have a webmaster who does customer service and technical stuff. And then I, I now I have a, a really great marketing guy who's also a guitar player who, who manages the, uh, you know, he's kind of becoming a very amazing manager. So it's, it's a, it's a team of four and it's, uh, it's, I, I, I'm in love with, I'm in love with it. It was, it was just a wonderful thing to transition into. Awesome. Well, Tim, I think it's a, an absolutely fantastic time in, um, in the world with the internet, with so many professionals like yourself sharing that knowledge and a bit different to you know, when we were starting to learn you're saying back when you were a kid, you're hearing all that stuff on the radio. Now you've actually got those people producing those hits, sharing the knowledge, and it's fantastic. And I want to say thank you for sharing your knowledge because it's it's priceless. It's it's a, a lifetime's worth of knowledge that people can click on and um, learn from your life, basically. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I, I will address your previous question because I, I, I realize there – since I do, I do interact with guitar players who are working on getting better. The, the, the thing that <clears throat> I can say about playing an instrument uh, is a light touch on your guitar will get you a much bigger sound. And you know this, you know what I'm going to say. A light touch on your guitar will get you the heaviest sound. Okay. It'll get you the fattest sound. And if I'm looking at guitar players and what mistakes they make, I mean, if you really want to be a good guitar player, turn your guitar up, turn your amp up, and learn how to control all the stuff that might pop out by accident, because you're loud, and pick very softly, and learn to control the guitar when it's really loud. It's, it's, it's explosively loud. Like Daniel Lenoir was famous for this. He would play super light. And so you have this, first of all, you have this dynamic range where you can go from clean to dirty simply with the how hard you pick. That involves setting the amp properly and having the amp and a kind of amp that opens and, and doesn't compress too much, is not too distorted. But if I'm if you're asking what mistakes guitar players make, um, they they might have an amp that's too distorted or too compressed, and they pick too hard or they don't realize that all these different 
levels of pick velocity will shape your style and make you connect with you won't sound like a student you'll sound like a performer if you use your your pick velocity to go from clean to dirty and that's something some guitar players just miss out on there are other things like if your vibrato is nervous that's an easy thing to stop just slow it down yeah vibrato from the wrist rather than the fingers that's another thing another thing is to make sure that you can connect notes as close together as possible and chords. So, I mean, I'm talking about if you're going from F to C to D to A, simple chords, there's gonna be a gap in between those chords. The great guitar players, they move from chord to chord with no gap. James Taylor is brilliant at this. I'm not so great at it. I've just been able to, you know, get through with their, you know, there are gaps between my chords that are bigger than I'd like. Some people, like the great guitar players, they move from one chord to another and there's no space in between. Yeah, it's right. things like that, that that some guitar players mi miss you know um and and then when you were talking about a mix i mean certainly these days cleaner sounds are more fashionable and cleaner sounds i think will stand the test of time better yep. now if you're a musician who you know you really like to make distorted music go ahead i mean that's not what i'm talking about but i'm talking about if, if you're playing on pop music where a singer is singing and it's a song cleaner sounds will you know you're less likely to week later to go oh that sounds a little too distorted anyway yep, yep. just wanted to go back to your other question sure that's probably my tip to a lot of guys is you're using too much distortion <laughs> Truly. And it happens to me i do it all the time i mean i because you it just sounds so good it's like oh that sounds drive on it. i'm doing my thing it sounds and then you realize wait a second it should be cleaner. Oh, I just did all that work and I want I need to redo it. It needs to be cleaner. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I, I'm more, more guilty of it than anybody on the planet. Yeah. Definitely. I was watching some Alison chains live uh, on YouTube recently and I, and it really struck me how not distorted Jerry Cantrell sound was. It was, he's, it's distorted, but he's playing. It's not overly saturated. Uh, and I have come across guys who are more bedroom players um, who just use way too much distortion. They've got all these gates going to try and stop it squealing. It's like, dude, just back your gain off. You're going to hear a lot more of what you're playing. Well, aesthetically, so we did find something. That is, that is probably the biggest mistake is that the distortion that I grew up on was pretty natural amp distortion. And if you listen to Black Sabbath, Sabbath at this point, it almost sounds almost sound like a jazz trio is i mean it's like it's so kind and warm the distortion on a black sabbath guitar sound and then you keep taking that and a lot of and and you're absolutely right about allison change but that's that's being smart they're smart their producers are smart it's being smart they know that with distortion there's a point where you go too far and that's the trickiest thing in the world to get it to the point where it's got the size it sounds huge I mean, Angus Young, ACDC, it's a perfect example. Yeah, it's not that it, distorted. Yeah, you don't go past the sweet spot. And so, yeah, I, yeah, you, 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 uh, you know, you brought me to the answer to your question. And that's, that's really it. So I, I thank you for that. It's, that's, and I still go through it. You know, I'm still going, okay, that can be, that can, that will actually sound bigger and more powerful if it's not quite as distorted. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, what don't you like about your own playing? 
I gotta say, I'm 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 so bored of my own playing, uh, and if I hear somebody that plays different styles, I just it pricks my ears up, and I just go, yeah, that's cool. If I hear other guys that play very similar to me, I just go, ah, yawn. Is there anything about your own playing that you don't like? Well, I will say this: I'm a very limited musician, and I I wish that I could use my fingers better. Yep. You know, I I would love to to do finger style stuff better. Um, I wish I was more versatile. I wish, you know, I'm, I'm actually a pretty limited musician, but if you're allowed to, to actually be an artist, those limitations actually end up defining your style. Yeah. Um, now I did a video recently where I it's called I played it 200 times and it's on my channel you can see it I was working up a solo for a YouTube performance and it I did over the course of a few nights you know like 30 times a night for a few nights in a row I kept trying it and it took me about 200 goes to get it where I liked it yep. to where it was like there it is I, oh I did it great I did it finally did it and it was a matter of so now I'm getting to the heart of your question again. It's 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 good. These are good questions. I will play very comfortably the biggest longest run-on sentence you've ever heard. Now every guitar player is guilty of this. But that's the, I, I it and it's so easy for me to it's like I I it's like ah oh, I I I'm and you're thinking, "Oh yeah, this is really cool. I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm going like that." And it's not it's just a run-on sentence. It's much harder to make conversational statements, you know, leave spaces, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, you know. So yeah, yeah. I, that run-on sentence, I, yeah, I, 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 that's probably one of the things I dislike about my playing. Absolutely. Yeah, because it is easy, isn't it, isn't it, to fall back on rehearsed things? Well, it's, 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 it's not that they're rehearsed, but they're so like, you can turn your mind off and just connect all of this stuff. I guess you've done it a million times before. So maybe, yeah, maybe rehearsed is the right word. Or maybe that's, that's, you've, you've, you've even triggered more truth by saying rehearsed, but it, you know, even when I'm improvising this run on sentence is probably stuff that I've just done a million times. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so. the big thing for helping me break out of that stuff is I saw – now, I always get confused whether it was a Larry Carlton or Robin Ford video that I saw over on True Fire about motifs mm -hmm. and using motifs in, in your soloing. And I can remember playing a gig with a friend of mine who I've been playing with in band since I was 14 years old. He's heard me play every trick I know. And I – just seen this video and I thought I'm going to use I'm going to use this idea of motifs and I started doing it come up with you know heard somebody play something I went okay I'm going to run with that and make some melodies out of that and my my friend who was a bass player just stopped after a while and threw his hands in the air and just went oh fuck how good how nice was that and there's been a couple of times I've played with other guys and as soon as I do it it really pricks people's ears and they go I don't, I don't know what whatever that is that's great so that's a little thing I, I use now and then, so I don't just fall into the land of playing endless runs, like you say. That's great. I, I endeavor to do the same thing, and that's that's a really great way of. That's a beautiful word, and 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 
I, I, I will take your advice too. <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I can stay, I can stay till about six forty-five. So if you want to go a little longer, I, 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 I'm really enjoying this. You're, you're oh, cool. actually great. You're, you're really great at this. It's, it's, uh, it's no wonder people show up for your, your podcast. It's oh, uh, it's thanks, Tim. Not many people know about it yet. I think it's just, uh, um, okay. If I reach out directly to an artist, it's usually. Yeah, I checked out your stuff. I'll come on. If I go through management, they start oh, looking at numbers and they go, oh, you don't have the views. You don't have the subs. It's like, yeah, but I'm working on a great back catalog. Eventually, the algorithm will pick up on it. And- yeah, it, that's the age old story, right? Like, yeah. It would be the yeah. same for me. Yeah, a manager. Yeah, just so much. It's such a big barrier, isn't it? Yeah. How long did it take for your YouTube channel to really take off? And was there a well, defining video the- that kicked it? The thing about YouTube is that I started early and every six months it becomes a different beast. So I think I might have started uh, maybe 2014, something like that. So much like the analogy I gave you of coming to L.A. and actually having it being a kind of open, nurturing place, which sounds preposterous, I know, but it was YouTube a few years ago was an easier place to show up and and build a channel it just exponentially got more and more saturated with people so if i i i started out doing famous songs because if you did you know if you i taught wind cries mary by hendrix i taught lagrange by zz top i taught hey joe by hendrix i taught uh, back in black by acdc because you knew that there would be people searching for those titles you could actually start building from there. And then Marty Schwartz, my friend who was huge on YouTube, he did a video with me and he helped me put me on the map too. I got a lot of subs when he released a video um, on his channel with me. So it was collaborations with some other YouTubers, Brett Papa also. He was yep. So Marty Schwartz and Justin Sanderco were the only teachers, uh, huge teachers on YouTube for the first few years. Yep. And, and then it all, and then in the pan, when the pandemic happened, every musician in the world put all their ambitions into YouTube and it got even more saturated. So the advice I would give today about starting on YouTube probably wouldn't apply just because it was, it was a, an easier place to get in. But yep. people are still doing it. People are still starting channels and, and uh, building them. It's, yep. it's still. Yeah. So Tim, when you're, it. when you're doing um, your videos and you, and your playing along to, to backing tracks. These are tracks that you create yourself? Yeah, I write. I spend a lot of time. It's one of my biggest joys. I write music. It's basically my running solo record. So the jam tracks I make and play over are my solo record. And it's it's in real time running week after week, month after month. Now, I don't write all the time. Sometimes I play over a song that somebody else wrote because that's a big joy too. And yeah. then the copyright and the monetization just goes to them. And I, I love that. I don't need the money from YouTube. So... Like, uh, you know, this Sunday morning, I'm going to do a live stream. I'm going to play over a Foo Fighters song. Uh, the copyright will pick up the money for them, and I'll play over this Foo Fighters song and kind of demonstrate it. Uh, but the, a week ago, I did a Robin Ford video, and I wrote a really cool tune for that that I spent a lot of time on. And that tune will stay with me forever. I'll use that tune, you know, when I do seminars, and I'll even play over it again on YouTube. So these are songs that I will use again and play again. It's one of my biggest joys is writing tracks yep and i'm 
just going to take that opportunity to say to everybody that keeps asking me when I'm going to start working on my own music again, I have gotten so much more views and made more money out of writing demo songs than I ever did trying to play in an original band. So you want that solo album? Go check out some of the demos I've done. They all start with a two-minute song that I've laboured over, I've programmed, performed everything. So that was so nice to hear you say that, Tim. Yes. People ask me, Paul Reed Smith, he's a friend of mine, and he would ask me, he's so annoyed that I'm not doing a solo record. And I said, Paul, my solo record is there for you on YouTube. It's the first two minutes of every video. That's my solo record. It's, yep. I'm doing it. I'm doing it every week. So I'm glad you're doing that. It's just a new, people have to adjust their thinking to the new, you know, it's all now in real time. You're doing it. That's your, you know, that is your solo career. You're yeah. doing it. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, I um, a big inspiration for wanting to get into it a few years ago was seeing I can't remember if it was like someone like Ola England or one of those guys, one of the big guys, going to do a run of clinic shows somewhere in China or something like that, and it was like the Beatles had come to town over a YouTuber, and I just that's when the the penny dropped for me, and I thought, wow, this guy's onto it. This guy's onto it. You, you know, you're trying yeah. to write. It, it's it, it it it's we have actually something. It's like we know a secret that that other people don't know because the appreciation you get from your audience in a situation like this is it's wonderful. It has nothing to do with money, although there are ways to monetize. In my case, it's teaching. There are other ways too. If you if you're doing a product demo, you can monetize that in different ways. You can get fees or you know whatever. But when I go to Nam. And people come up to me and, and, and they thank me very, very sincerely for helping them, you know, learn something or brightening their day. Yep. It's, it's amazing. And you, to think that we did, we, it's like we did this end around the entertainment industry. It's like, it's like we bypassed the, you know, the entertainment business and went straight to the, the audience, yep. straight to the audience. Yep. It's amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. I just asking about the, the tracks that you play over for your, for your videos. Um, do you program drums? Here's the way it works. My, uh, my film editor is a drummer and an amazing, he's, I, I think he's the best drum programmer in the world. So when I ask him, I might hear a song. Like the other day I said, I want this to be a cross between Stuart Copeland and Vinnie Caliuta. So it's the police, and then Vinny's an amazing drummer that a lot of us know, and he just did it, you know. And 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 then I used it, and that was the track underneath my Robin Ford song that I wrote for my Robin Ford video that I did a couple of weeks ago. So I do have a great programmer on salary. So my film editor, who's editing all my films, he will make me amazing drum programs anytime I ask. But that being said, I actually use real drums. I hired my friend Victor Indrizzo, who's out with Alanis Morissette right now, and he'll I'll pay him to play drums. I I had an actual track that Vinnie Caliuta made that was on a hard drive because we did a session together that he gave me as a gift. So it's a combination of real drummers, uh, my programmer, and then there are places, there's a place called Yurt Rock where you can get amazing drums these days from real drummers. And there are packages you can buy from guys like Aaron Sterling, and 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 there. So I would say, 
buy packages from real drummers and 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 they'll get you know a, they'll get paid for it and you'll have real drums and the thing about a drum track that's one of those pieces of gear you can use the rest of your life because a drum track can be repurposed for any style of music any style of song any key like i'll i'll use a drum track from five years ago and write a brand new song to it and it's it's amazing yep. it's it's always amazing to put up inspiring drums and play to them so i would say if you are not if you don't have that much fun or not that adept at programming drums there's so many places you can grab loops your rock is an amazing place you can grab real drum performances and just cut and paste something and play to that so that's how i do it cool i uh i lean on easy drummer that was a game changer for me yeah, i that's, spend I that's weeks my, programming drums my drums are that's what my drums are they're yep. easy drummer. Yeah. There's that in superior drummer. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. Easy drummer, I think, is what my drum programmer uses. And it's phenomenal. I can't believe it. Uh, I I would take weeks programming drums for, for clients. And now I just use that. Actually, it was Older England. I saw a, a video mm -hmm. of his because I used to hear, hear his old demos where he would uh, have this most amazing metal drumming. And I'm thinking, man, he must spend weeks programming that. And then I saw a video of his, how I make my drums in five minutes. And as soon as I saw that video, I was just like, here's my credit card. Give me that. And yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing thing. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. It's, uh, I've chosen to hand that off to somebody else, but that's, you, I mean, it, it is easy drummer. That's what he uses. So yeah. my program drums are easy drummer. I see a good question here. What's my favorite speaker in my cab? I was just about I to ask that. Yes. Oh, great. Good. Okay, good. I got some very, very old Celestians recently, uh, and I really like them. They sound really, really not too bright and and great. So they uh, Celestians of any you know any vintage. I've used brand new Celestians my whole career on records. So, but lately I've been kind of obsessed with you know early seventies Celestians, late sixties Celestians. They're hard to find. Yeah, you only need one to mic. You know one one speaker so yeah it's selections and these days I'm, I'm looking at the old ones uh you know um 25s i like i like 30s i like greenbacks i like blackbacks there's a speaker that a lot of people know about that was in, made in 1978 to 1980 it's called a g12 65 it's a 65 watt selection that's also very very good that was made in the late 70s and they're pretty affordable but they're more hi-fi they don't break up as quickly so you're not quite as friendly for some things uh, as uh, so short, simple answer. 25 or 30 watt selections. Awesome. Do you ever uh, mix speakers in your cabs, like have a mixture of them? I have. I have before. But, you know, it's for me, it's more about having two different microphones. And, you know, it, it's like and most of the producers, like if you take Alice in Chains, uh, you know, I think wasn't that Dave Jordan who produced a lot of that stuff? I generally, think so. Yeah. Generally, a cabinet. He would put different speakers in a cabinet. Yeah, he was actually famous for that. But but blending microphones is where you really, really can get some you know different frequencies that are nice. And it, it's not the speakers aren't as important as long as you have ones that you like. And and a lot of four twelve cabinets are going to be loaded with the same identical speakers. So not so much really. It's more microphones. Two yep. different microphones. Awesome. And how do you actually mic your caps? Uh, I, I'll use a 57, which everybody 
you know, we we have that in our blood, in our DNA. We know the and sound. Then I'll have, I use tube Royers, which are the 122 Vs, which are their tube ribbons. Yep. And then I also have some old Sony C800. Uh, it's not the C800 with the heat sink, but it's a, it's a looks similar. It's an old um, Sony big, large diaphragm mic. So any any large diaphragm mic you use or ribbon mic you use in combination with the 57 will give you a nice blend of, I call it the 57 being the fist in the mid-range in the center. Yep. And then the uh, other mic is the pillow around it, the, the you know, the, the uh, all the fidelity yep. around this mid-range fist, which is the 57. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I have a similar theory on, on that, that, but I always refer to the 57 as being the teeth that just sits in that mid-range and... Yeah, you and I. Yeah, we've we've had that happen a few times. It's it's the same. Yeah, we think about things the same. And and it's funny. It's not unique. Once you start doing this, there are practical solutions that you realize. Once again, we're getting back to this SM fifty seven. This is a lifetime thing. You know, it's you can try and find something to replace it, but at a certain point, spend that time on something else. You know. So yeah, that's another lifetime piece of gear. Yep. Absolutely. What are some benchmark guitar sounds for you? When you're sort of trying to dial things in, is there certain sounds that you just go, oh, man, I just want to sound like? Yeah, it's 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 really the, the vintage Marshall sound, that kind of breakup that's warm and half, dist- it's the half distorted sound. Yeah. You know, any version of half distorted, then a little delay on it so that it modulates and sounds like it's in space a little bit. Never chorusing, but this modulated delay that, it's separate. And, and in fact, if it's a stereo delay, it'll be over here on the right and left and your signal will be in the center and it'll never interfere with the center signal. But for rhythm parts, a signature sound, it's going to be half distorted. It's going to have a little bit of delay. And the most amazing thing that has changed for guitar is that in the 80s and 90s, you could not print reverb. Nobody wanted to hear a, a reverb. And now people can't get enough of it. I can literally print a spring reverb sound on everything I do, and people just eat it up. So really? reverb, reverb is great. And a reverb pedal between a guitar and an amp, if you distort your amp slightly and you have a reverb pedal between your guitar and your amp, the way the reverb hits the distortion is a very satisfying thing. It, it kind of blends with, it, you know, I'm talking about a pedal in front of the In amp. front of the distorted amp. Okay. Yeah, I would yeah. I would never Just do like that. A, but and it's a reverb pedal. Anyway, it hits the distortion on the amp and it kind of creates, they mate with each other in a very friendly way. And yeah, I've right. noticed that. Like, I imagine that'd be a very I, grainy kind of sound at a grain to Well, once again, you have to, you can't go too far with it. So that's exactly what we're talking about. You have to get it up to not too distorted, not too much reverb, not, you know, you if you, if you always keep yourself below the threshold of too much. That's where all the good sounds are. So yeah, you can, it will work. And then you can go too far and it's like, oh, it's, and then you bring it back. And, oh, that's amazing. So yeah. You mentioned the delays there. Uh, and I meant to ask you before, are you running stereo delays, the whole left, right thing? For solos. For solos, yes. yep. I yep. stereo delay for solos and I love stereo delay in Pro Tools for solos because it's negotiable, like I said. So this is a great question. Mono for rhythm parts, because rhythm parts, I like to be left and right. And they take too much space if they're stereo. Now, there might be that one featured part that sounds that shows up that sounds great in stereo with stereo delay. But by and large, the rule is mono for rhythm parts. The only time I use stereo delays is for solos and lead lines. Cool, cool. Now, there's another question just popped up there. 
from Great. Miranda. Tim, if I may ask, what are your favorite PRS pickups? Uh, here's one of my uh, one of my deficiencies as a musician. I, I kind of don't care enough to remember what is in some. Like, I don't care enough to know what tubes are in amps, and I don't care enough to know what what uh, pickups are in a guitar. I'm not proud of that. I'm not saying that like, you know, like I'm impressed with myself because I'm not because literally everybody I know can remember what pickups are in a guitar. But I will say this, the Paul Reed Smith pickups that they send me in guitars these days are, I kind of let Paul choose them and they're phenomenal. I'll put this a different way. Every pickup maker I know has been seeking the same thing for so many years that they're all at a point where if you go get Pete Thorne's Thornbuckers, they sound like a vintage PAF from a 1959 Les Paul. If you go get Ron Ellis pickups, they sound like a vintage pickup from a 1959 Les Paul. If you get Paul Reed Smith's pickups, they sound like a vintage pickup from a 1959 Les Paul. They have all worked so hard for so many years to emulate the holy grail sound of that PAF that they all do it now. I have Tyson tone pickups that sound like a 59 PAF from a Les Paul. I have. I see a common thread happening here. (laughs) So, so yeah. And, and what that sound is, it doesn't sound like a humbucker. It sounds like a Gretsch. It's bell like and open sounding and not too distorted and not too loud. And everybody has arrived there. Every, I mean, I'm astounded because it wasn't that way five years ago. And it certainly wasn't that way 10 years ago. But the vintage aesthetic has brought, been brought forward by all of these guys that we know and love to the point where I don't think you can, you know, I don't there, I don't hear any bad pickups anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is low output, very bell-like, very PAF vintage sounding, almost, put it this way, they sound like a single coil pickup with, you know, with a healthier mid-range. They sound like a single coil, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Tim, I I know I don't want you to give away too much secrets on stuff that may be paid content on your website, but fretboard navigation. For me, I spent the longest time knowing one or two pentatonic shapes and the notes in between that would give it different flavors. So, hey, we're playing an A minor. Watch me playing at the fifth fret. And it took me a long time to break out of that and get familiar with the rest of the fretboard. And I started asking people about how they navigate the fretboard. And I I realized that there's many different ways that people view it. Do you have a particular system that you use? And the thing is, the thing in this line, and you probably already realize this or you're, you're already doing it. You give away everything. And then it's that goodwill that brings people to your monetized thing. So there are no secrets to be withheld. You know, the way I approach navigating the fretboard is I see chord shapes everywhere. And that's probably my biggest asset. So if I, I see an A minor triad, I see it everywhere in every combination in every position. And that's not hard to do for anybody. You can, you can find those three notes in different inversions and combinations everywhere on the neck, okay? Then all you have to do if you're playing a song that's an E minor is you just shift that template that you've already learned over here because the fretboard, it's all repeated up and down the neck. Yep. 
So that's one thing. I see chord shapes everywhere. And then I do two other things when I navigate the neck. I, I do sweet melodies, which is that motif that you were talking about. So I do the motifs and then I play aggressive blues and then I do chord shapes. So my soloing really is comprised of three elements. And I'm actually going to do a PDF on this where it's sweet melodies or sweet motifs, might borrow your word, aggressive blues and chord shapes. Now, what happens when you play a motif, it's going to be melodic. The minute I play a melodic motif, I'm craving something aggressive and mean. So I go into blues, right? And if I'm playing blues, I go, well, I don't want to just be a blues player. And I go, I'll do a melody with this chord shape here. I'll do spread triad or, or something that traces a chord and that creates its own melody. So if I keep cycling between those three things and then I am varying my pick velocity so that some notes in the phrase are loud and some notes are softer, that goes so far to making you sound like an, you know, one of your heroes, like da 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 that. And you're doing that with your right hand and you're cycling between sweet melodies, aggressive blues, and chord shapes, chord arpeggios in your soloing, the, you'll never get bored. The listener will never get bored. Now I'll take it a step further and say that in most of the music I listen to, it's diatonic. The songs are simple. You're either going to be using a seven note scale or a five note scale. A five note scale, a pentatonic scale is really useful because we've all just spent our lives listening to it, you know. And then you, you start adding in those other two notes and it gets a little more color. And then you take away those two notes and it's pentatonic again. So there's nothing wrong with playing pentatonic blues as long as you can break it up with the seven note scale from time to time. And then lastly, I'll say about navigating the fretboard, I see, like if I'm in A minor, I see it everywhere on the neck. And just move your index finger up to the second fret. You see it there. You move it up to the fifth fret. You see it there. Move it to the seventh fret. You see it there. And you can navigate all the way in each position. So learn each position. And the simple trick I use to change positions is if I'm going down the neck, I'm in the middle of a phrase, slide your index finger down, two notes, keep playing. In the middle of a phrase. Nobody knows that you've moved a position, but you have a brand new position. Slide up with your third finger, your little finger, slide down with your index finger. In the middle of phrases. Yep. And you're everywhere all the time changing. And if you if you're the listener closed their eyes, they would never know you were moving your hand, but you're everywhere on the neck. And every new place you go on the neck is like hopping off of a bus and going into a new neighborhood. You have all these possibilities just with the timbre and the way you have to shape your fingers to get around and negotiate, you know, the, the scale in that position. And it just creates all this new stuff. So that's I mean, without having a guitar in my hands. That's I, you know, it's it's you can kind of talk about it pretty simply. Yep, yep. So when you're talking about playing around the different different chords, is that what other people would refer to as the cage system? Sure. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. The cage system. I still haven't figured out exactly what that is. I keep looking at people's videos, and it's oh, is that, is that what I so? didn't for years. I didn't understand what they were talking about when I was younger. It's, it was presented to me. I said, I, I don't know what you're trying to say. I do get it now, and I think it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Well, explain it to me really quickly if you can. Okay. So you take a C chord. Yeah. Have you seen these guitars, man? This is an electrophonic. Oh. Let me just go to Pretty a full screen. Yeah. This ha isn't. This has a amp and speakers built into it and ah, effects. Cool. Yeah, man. Cool. Louis put me onto these actually. 
he came around to my place one day playing it. And he was walking towards my place uh, to the door playing it. I was like, what the hell is that? Um, let me just clean the sound up a bit. All right, so C can be played as a C shape. It can be played as an A shape. It can be played as a G shape. It can be played as an E shape. And it can be played as a D shape, which would be fingered uh, something really awkward like that. C, A, G, E, D. And there is certain shapes that fit in around each one of those. And you were talking about changing positions. And I have watched you and gone, oh, I see your mid-phrase, change positions. And you may go from the shape that everybody knows, which would be the G shape in the caged system. So caged is just the chords, C-A-G-E-D. And I'm probably a very bad explainer of this. No, it's good. And the thing is that it is something that I do without knowing that I'm doing it. It, It's kind of when I said that I see the chords everywhere on the neck, I kind of meant that, but I've always had trouble explaining it. And it's semantics, I guess. And it is the cage system. So to answer your question, yes, it is the cage system. I'm a big proponent of that. You know who does a really good kind of explanation, and he's a virtuoso guitar player is Guthrie Trap. If you look at, at his YouTube channel, he'll talk about the cage system and he's a, you know, he's a, he blazes. I will look but him up. That because that, that actually was very clear. It was very clear. Okay. And then to take that one step further, I realize there's a lot of guys who are three note per string pl- uh, players and they know the whole fretboard is three note per strings. So I've learned to recognize uh, if I was using or oh, so the three note per string thing, there's a revolving cycle. Do you know, have you clicked onto that? No, show me that. Show me that. Okay, so I've just changed so people can see what I'm doing. Uh, and I'm going to call each finger one, two, three, four, and they're all assigned. So the revolving, revolving cycle goes one, two, four, one, two, four, one, three, four, one, three, four. Then you go up a fret because that B string, and you would go whole tone apart. If I had another string, it would be three whole tones in a row. And then the whole thing repeats again. Upper fret. One, two, four. One, two, four. And it's the same if you're playing a um, seven, eight, nine string. The, the pattern keeps going the other way. I, I've i picked up eight, nine string guitars before and been able to play. And people go, how do you know that? Well, the cycle just keeps going. That one's a little bit harder to, sh- to explain without diagrams. But I, if I'm doing the playing in my C position, a chord, I can see, okay, that's my one, uh, one, two, four shape, that I'm going to have three whole tones before that, and then I got the one, three, four, if I had another string, it'd be one, three, four again, again, this makes a lot of sense if you see it with dots on a fretboard diagram, but no, I try no, and make yeah, it totally makes sense. Totally yep. makes sense. Yeah. And, and I then, think that's something a lot of us do instinctively. It's it's learning to explain it. it. That's the hard thing is actually explaining it. You know how to do it. You know what you're doing. It's happening instinctively. But talking about it is is another another mountain to climb. That's an art. Yeah, being able to sense. explain it to people. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if you want to maybe ask me one more question. I have an idea for you though. I've enjoyed this so much. Yeah. Uh, my idea is this: Can we get together with Louis mm-hmm. as as we originally planned? Yep. And 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 can we do that soon? 
I'm going to try and call him now and see if he'll answer his phone. Oh, but yeah, but I mean, I, the thing is, I have to go. My wife's waiting for t- to take her out to dinner. So what I'm saying, can we do another one of these with Louis? Absolutely. The the uh, one of the the things was um, I was going to get him to do it from his place and bring him in as a guest, but I realized the last time I tried to do that, have multiple guests, they can't see each other. And oh. that makes it awkward. So he was here a, a week or two ago and we talked about just setting up a little coffee table and we can sit there and you can see the both of us. So let's do this. And I'm going to try and get Steve Lukather on board as well. Awesome. But if, if Steve, Steve's pretty busy, I think they're going out, well, maybe not soon, but either way, I mean, I would do, I would do both, but I'd love to do this again. I mean, it's, we're almost at two hours and I, I'm, I could go forever. I mean, it's, it's, re- you're really, really, really an enjoyable person to, to talk music with. Oh, thank you. I mean, I would love to ask Louis some questions. I'd love for the, the three of us to, to, to do what we, what we tried. That to was do the original plan. Here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. please. Yeah. I, let, let this not be the, uh, the end. Let this only be the beginning. I'm really happy to hear you say that, Tim. So I, I'm going to call him as soon as we get off here and, um, and line that up. Uh, I, I might have to borrow another microphone or a thing and set it all up, but we're, we're going to make this happen. Let's do it over the next yeah, week or two. We'll, just, we'll have to wait for, you know, he's busy, so we'll just have to, we'll have to work it around his schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is and he, and he isn't. Um, I know when, it's best to catch him. And as I said, he's just around the corner. So I'm going to give him a call yeah, as soon great. as we finish this yeah. up and uh, awesome. line it up. And I'll be in touch. Tim, thank you so much for your time, man. I've thank had- you. And it was great seeing everybody on the chat. Glad we got out. This chat is a really great thing. It makes me feel connected with the, the audience. So it is good. It is good. Yeah, this is, a, this is a great, great thing. And I can't wait to do it again. Awesome. I'm going to uh, use my little magic controller to hit my end screen, which will end everything with my magic little logo that goes like this. Bye now.